Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm your host, Lisa Island. This week, we're diving into U.S.-China trade, China's energy and climate outlook, and much more. We're very pleased to welcome back to the show Justin Wu. Justin is the head of Asia-Pacific at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. He joined Sarah Ladislaw last week to talk about U.S.-China trade disputes and the Phase 1 deal, especially looking at the energy impacts and questions around the longer-term energy sector investment. They also talked about the outlook for Chinese emissions and climate goals, Chinese energy security and policies for electric vehicles, and coal financing across the region. They wrap up with a discussion on the future of India's clean energy investments. Justin, thanks again for joining us here at Energy 360. Great to be back, Sarah. Thanks. We had a really good conversation about this time last year about some of the big trends that you were seeing in clean energy in Asia, and we thought it would be a great opportunity to have you back to talk about some of those things again. Um, particularly, you know, this week we've got the U.S. and China signing phase one of uh, not sure how many phases they're going to be <laughs> resolution to the U.S.-China trade dispute, which has had a huge impact on sort of the politics between U.S. and China. Uh, over the last uh, several years, and then also, you know, really raised some, you know, fairly significant questions about the future of the global trade order. We've had several different podcasts where we talk about, you know, how that actually relates to the United States uh, and China and energy trade. But I was just sort of, you know, wondering, because you spend most of your time thinking and reflecting on this from a perspective grounded in Asia, what are some of your thoughts and your analysis showing about, you know, what kind of impact uh, we might see from this, you know, beginning of a resolution uh, and what kind of impact have you seen so far in terms of the impacts of the, the trade dispute in general? Sure. Well, it's certainly an interesting time to come back uh, to, to this podcast. Um, I think as we're speaking now, they're probably setting up the chairs and, and the flags and trying to get ready for the signing ceremony. So at the risk of speculating too much on what exactly is in the document, um, you know, we could talk a little bit about what we sort of see in the, in the wider context. As far as our, um, you know, our view of, of looking at the, the trade dispute um, that's sort of been ongoing, I think, for the last year and a half, um, it's largely uh, sort of affected three areas um, of interest for, for energy, if you will. The first is is sort of an old story. It's it's um, you know solar panels and, and solar products. Um, I think there was an announcement last August that President Trump uh, put some tariffs on on Chinese. Uh, I think it was refrigerators or washers and then solar. So that that sort of generated some interesting headlines around that. Um, so that's one. And then the second area, um, which was more recent, was around sort of uh, lithium ion batteries. Uh, battery, especially battery grade materials, and also the the sort of the battery uh, packs themselves, um, and that appears to be a little bit of a sort of a tit for tat, uh, where both sides were putting tariffs on on each other on on that one, um, and then the third area, which I think is um, a little more interesting and a bit more new this time around, um, was on U.S. Uh, LNG. So actually, China had. Uh, was starting to import some U.S. Uh, LNG cargoes, I think, in uh, 2017 or 2018. Um, and this was sort of uh, an emerging area. It was starting The volume was starting to, to grow. Uh, I think at some point it reached um, somewhere close to almost $16 billion uh, of, of Chinese imports. But then it uh, suddenly all uh, came to a stop uh, with, with the trade dispute and also some, some international market dynamics on, on LNG as well. 
Um, so that's a new area, and that that'll be interesting to see how that plays out as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, this sort of inclusion of things like solar panels and the story of, you know, tit for tat between the U.S. and China on trade issues with regard to, you know, certain energy resources is not fundamentally new. How much attention does it garner for the companies that you're talking to in, or the governments that you're talking to in Asia? Are they changing their strategy at all relative to where they suspect the, the sort of larger environment between the U.S. and China to be going? Well, let, let's start with the solar because this is one that I, I think it uh, in some ways predates the, uh, the Trump administration and the recent sort of tr- uh, trade disputes. For a while, there, there's been um, trade cases against Chinese solar exports, whether it's what's brought by the United States or, or actually the European Union and, and even some other countries um, and India as well, actually considering that. You know, generally speaking, I mean, there, there's sort of two things that, that happened um, with these solar tariffs. The first was that, um, you know, most people realized that the tariffs could not really keep up with the speed at which uh, the, the cost of solar products in general was falling. So you would, you know, you would set them at a certain level. They would usually last for somewhere between one, two, three, or four years. But at some point, they go away and sort of things resume. Um, and often, even if you, uh, you know, put a 10, 20, or even 30 percent uh, sort of uh, tariff on, on these solar products, uh, somehow it tends to get massaged away in, in, in the end um, because just uh, the, the, the cost of these products falls so quickly and then Chinese manufacturing actually is, is pretty, um, pretty efficient and pretty cost efficient, I would say, on these things. So, so generally they've been um, not that effective on, on that end is our sort of our view. The second element is that there is a shift of some Chinese manufacturing away from China to uh, neighboring countries, especially first they went actually to uh, Taiwan, for instance, but then Taiwan uh, also went on to the tariff list. Uh, and then there's uh, more recently a shift towards uh, Southeast Asian markets such as Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, etc. So in some ways, you know, when that has happened, it's it's kind of again it, it kind of circumvented some of the some of the tariffs. So. I think net on net, um, the impact is not major on on the solar industry. And right now, China still um, manufactures somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of the world's solar panels. And what about the impacts of a protracted U.S.-China, you know, uh, tariff uh, dispute or just, you know, worsening trade relations overall? I mean, do you guys have a view on what that might mean for the shift of investment over the longer term? Well, I think, uh, I mean, clearly nobody nobody really likes it. And, and <laughs> some people make, uh, you know, tend to make a bigger noise about it. Uh, I think if you talk to executives in, in various Chinese solar or renewable energy companies, they would try to, you know, generally put on a brave face and say, okay, we know this is an issue, but you know what, we're different. We, we're a global company. We have our supply chain in, in all sorts of different places. We have a diversified business uh, that's not only dependent on the U.S. market, for instance. So they would, of course, put on a brave face, but um, at the same time, of course, the U.S. is still a very important market for uh, Chinese solar products or, or, or batteries or other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's definitely not a, not a good thing for these executives or for these solar companies, rather. Um, and then, of course, you know, at a wider point, and this is not only on, on solar, but on, I think on other uh, companies as well, um, there is, of course, potentially some decoupling of the supply chain, right? There are companies that will think twice now about opening up a new factory in China, uh, they may consider a, a neighboring um, location, a neighboring country or a market. 
you know, we don't know how much of that has happened, but clearly that is starting to happen, and that could be sort of a, a longer-term uh, trend. Turning to China and sort of the domestic context for a moment, you know, in the lead up to the last UN Conference of Parties meeting, there was a lot of speculation about how the sort of, you know, concerns about an economic downturn in China would affect their energy policy. Would they increase uh, uh, stimulus or or spending, particularly for energy-intensive goods and manufacturing? There was a lot of discussion about what their longer-term targets might be, particularly as they think about the 14th five-year plan. Can you you know, give us some context for what you guys are seeing as far as, you know, Chinese energy policy, both in the near term uh, and then also over this, like, longer planning cycle. Sure. You know, China can, uh, is the largest uh, emitter of greenhouse gases in the world currently. So what what happens in China obviously has a lot, um, can really shape the whole narrative on, on climate change and, and what's happening. You know, coincidentally, 2015, when, when Paris was signed, was actually a, a good year for emissions. Uh, the Chinese um, uh, sort of, uh, whether it's coal consumption or power generation, was actually um, at a low that year. So the numbers came out, and, and everybody thought that um, basically emissions were already peaking, peaking or flattening anyway in, in China. So that, was, that seemed like a good year. But actually, uh, in the subsequent years, and, and then especially in uh, 2018, the last year that we have sort of full-year data, uh, things have spiked again. And, and I think that triggered a lot of news stories mm-hmm. saying that, oh, actually, um, you know, three years or four years since Paris, nothing has really changed. But having said all that, um, our view is that uh, China's still very much on track to uh, hit its uh, its goals, its, both its Paris goals and uh, the goals that um, basically Foreign President Obama and, and Xi, uh, President Xi Jinping agreed on back in 2015. So what that was essentially is that China will try to peak its emissions by around the year 2030. Um, and we actually think that might happen even sooner than that. That mm-hmm. could be somewhere in the late 2020. So that's uh, very much uh, on track. Um, and then, of course, there's a discussion now in China because the planning goes in five-year cycles. So now uh, we're close to the end of the 13th five-year plan, which ends in 2020. Uh, and then the 14th five-year plan sort of kicks in between 2021 and 2025. Um, and this is, you know, a big sort of catch-all macroeconomic policy, uh, a set of policies, I should say, um, and c- of course includes a lot on climate and energy and, and, and everything in the, in the whole economy. So there's a, there's a, there's a discussion um, happening right now in China. Um, you know, I would say even though there was not a lot that was offered, um, I think, in, in COP25 in Madrid uh, about a month ago, but there are some interesting discussions happening in China right now. Um, there is now a discussion about uh, net zero emissions. Mm-hmm. We don't really think, um, you know, that's not necessarily going to make it into the plan, but at least that sort of conversation is opened. Um, there's also a wider discussion about uh, coal in general. Um, what's interesting is that China's obviously still building some coal, uh, but its uh, existing coal power plants are actually operating at relatively low efficiencies. It's somewhere below 50% capacity factors for its coal plants. Uh, which is not not great. So there's a question now that policymakers are are asking, you know, whether it's worth it to shut down some of these coal plants. So there are some sort of indications of these things. Um, but I think from a climate angle, the the concern is still that it's not enough and not quickly enough. 
the the Chinese aspirations for emission, emissions reductions are not fast enough or steep enough. You it, mean? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of um, now everybody says that, okay, it's 2020. Um, according to the IPCC reports, we basically have somewhere between 10 to 15 years to to you know you know reach net zero right or at least to get close to it so that we can prevent uh, 1.5 to 2 degrees of, of global warming by the mid-century. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, 1.5 degrees is still pretty catastrophic on the environment. Um, so if if we're down to about 10 years or so to really turn the ship around, um, a lot more has to happen. So obviously, all these things are are good when we t- when we talk about shutting down coal power plants or, or carbon carbon neutrality in, in some of these major economies. Um, but still, it's it's talk, and and for some, you know, uh, there's a feeling that this is not quick enough, or it, it will be, you know, it will be sort of too late still. Oftentimes in the United States, we have conversations about coal use in China that are very, um, very one-sided, right? It's either coal is so essential to the Chinese energy economy that there's no way you could have more aggressive targets to um, prematurely retire coal infrastructure. I think the IEA came out, you know, last year saying that Asia has some of the youngest coal-fired power generation in the world, and the desire to sort of slow that down is uh, doesn't exist because coal still sort of outcompetes uh, other energy resources. And you also hear sort of, you know, the idea that it's not just the cost competitiveness of coal in China, but it's really about the political economy of the coal sector that gives it sort of a political longevity. Do you see any of those, you know, factors or issues shifting in the Chinese context, particularly as they're thinking towards a new five-year plan? Yeah, I I think all of that is very much correct and very much um, part of the challenge, I would say. To give you a number, the, the average um, age of the coal fleet, uh, coal power fleet in China is about nine years. So that's a very young uh, you know, set of power plants. Many of them are really new and considered more efficient and yeah, supercritical, ultra-supercritical, et cetera. Um, so given that most coal plants operate for something like 40 or in some cases 50 years, um, you know, some of these projects still have a long way to go, frankly, for, for people who've uh, finance these projects, they haven't really made the returns, for instance, yet on it. So it's, it is definitely a, a challenge economically. Um, I think there's another dimension that we need to think about, which is around energy security. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting recently is that we, we took a look at um, uh, energy security in China, and surprisingly, actually, China's energy security situation has worsened considerably in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. When I say that, what I mean is the amount of gas it imports, uh, whether through pipelines or LNG, um, that's gone up to about 45%, um, which is much higher than what the government or wants or what people um, wanted. Um, it was something like 12% at the start of uh, this de- uh, last last decade, I should say, so 2010, and it surged up to 45%. Um, and then the other one is oil, actually. So China is now importing more oil than the U.S. has ever had in its history. So something like almost 80% of the oil consumed in, in China is imported from, from somewhere else. So from a fossil fuels perspective, that's gotten a lot worse. I bring that up because um, unlike the U.S., uh, China does not have a abundant th- source of domestic gas that's easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, its only abundant source of domestic energy in the traditional sense is coal. Mm. So I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, it will factor into policymakers' minds that, okay, you know, we want to be cleaner, 
but can we give up this this massive source of domestic energy that essentially is a sense of security, right? And I think that's going to be really hard to decouple all of that really quickly. Yeah, increasingly, too, we are having a conversation here about whether or not China's perception of uh, even diversification of their import sources, right? So even if the volumes of oil and gas or the share of oil and gas that they're importing goes up, there was an argument that if, as long as it's coming from enough different places, then maybe you can improve your energy security outlook. But if you think you have a, a negative uh, trade relationship trend occurring and you've got sort of instability in the Middle East, which is a huge support supplier of you know some of these resources to China, then that energy security uh, framework starts to look much worse. Right? That, that's right. And, and actually, I think in the trade agreement, we might see um, something around fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. something around China buying more uh, gas, oil and gas from the U.S., given that the U.S. now is the largest uh, exporter of, of, uh, of oil in the world and then uh, you know the third largest exporter of LNG. Um, there is actually a natural fit there for China. You know, if we want to sort of shift the trade balance in the U.S.'s favor, mm. um, that would be an obvious uh, uh, sort of item for China to buy from the U.S. One more question I had on the China five-year plan process and then wanted to sort of move to Southeast Asia, which is another area that's getting a lot of attention. In previous years, five-year plans are have been very focused on a, a greater degree of economic liberalization and uh, a huge emphasis on innovation. Um, do you see, you know, the emphasis changing on either of those issues in this five-year plan, or is it simply too early to tell? Um, not, not at all. Um, I, I think that's still very much in place. Um, so the whole idea that. Um, the economy in China should shift away from heavy industry towards, uh, you know, higher value manufacturing, higher value goods and, and services is very, still very much in place, um, and that shift will likely continue, and, and the government would likely support that. Um, another area where we see evidence of this is actually in uh, electric vehicles. Um, so, uh, you know, in the last sort of five years. Um, the policy in China has mostly focused on developing the car itself, the electric vehicle itself, the battery, and the battery supply chain. Um, and that's sort of achieved uh, pretty good results. So there's something close to 10 million electric vehicles now on the road in China. More by the end of this year, there'll probably be something like that, and that's uh, ahead of everybody else. Um, but you see that now in, in some newer policy announcements or discussions on um, uh, electric vehicle policy, uh, there's a discussion about the whole ecosystem, um, which means actually, uh, for instance, vehicle-to-grid technologies, uh, the software that actually runs the cars, the 5G network uh, that's required if you want to have autonomous vehicles, et cetera. So that shift away from sort of, okay, just the battery and the car, but actually the, 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 uh, the stuff that runs it, which requires obviously a lot more innovation and is, is, a, is a higher value type of good. Mm. Your focus on electric vehicles makes me want to ask about the shift in Tesla's position in China and, and what you all expect to see from that in the coming years. It seems it's made Elon Musk rather happy. Yeah, we I uh, saw a video of him dancing in, in Shanghai apparently, <laughs> and, and I was told it was not safe for work, so I didn't didn't uh, <laughs> to include a video of it, uh, just to, just to capture. But um, it, it's funny. I mean, um, if if you look at that, I think it was the opening ceremony of a of a of a gigafactory. Um, but essentially, the, um, the, the Tesla, I think the Model 3s uh, that are going to be uh, manufactured in Shanghai are, are actually going to, going to qualify for some of the subsidies yeah. uh, in China that would 
you know, that are usually given to domestic manufacturers. Mm. But because of the Gigafactory, the Teslas that are manufactured there are quote unquote considered a domestic vehicle. So, mm. so it's one of the, uh, frankly, one of the, the few um, sort of foreign electric vehicle models um, that is going to be available in China. Um, if you look at the the sales numbers, Tesla is actually the twelfth best selling um, electric vehicle <laughs> in China. It's it is on the on the list, but a little bit far down the list. Uh, the BYD is is quite quite a ways ahead. Um, but that actually raises an interesting question. Um, talking to some in the industry in in China, um, one of the concerns um, that has been raised is that well, you know, we sell a lot of electric vehicles in China, but nobody actually knows any uh, brands. Right mm-hmm. outside of China, uh, most people probably never heard of uh, BYD or Geely or, or or something like that. Uh, but everybody's heard of a Tesla. So there, there's a question uh, about could you know could China manufacture its own Tesla? Mm-hmm. And Tesla really competes you know at a at a luxury sort of level, right? Consumers will pick it because they um, they like the car. They think they see it as a as a premium product. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, you know, will Anyone ever pick a Chinese electric vehicle for the same reason? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's again goes back to value—the value argument. Yeah. Um, turning to Southeast Asia for a minute is something you and I talked about last year when we met as well. Clearly, there's a huge amount of interest here, uh, particularly from the U.S. government, from the Trump administration, very interested in. Uh, particularly the Belt and Road Initiative and energy and infrastructure investment, not only you know throughout Southeast Asia but in other parts of the world, it's started a, a fairly sort of brisk debate about you know who is financing coal in uh, Southeast Asia, who's financing lots of different energy infrastructure in Southeast Asia, and is that going to shift? Will it be more gaseous? Will it be more? Uh, renewable energy oriented, and you guys have done some recent work on that. So I was wondering if you could share some of what you're thinking. Yeah, that that's a, also really a interesting topic. Um, so we're we're uh, we're doing a study on coal financing in Southeast Asia, and actually we're going to uh, publish this report uh, a bit later uh, this month. Uh, but essentially, what we decided to do is we, we looked at uh, two countries, um, Indonesia and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the two of them are, are number three and number four in terms of um, having a, co- a pipeline of coal power projects, the largest pipeline of coal power projects after uh, China and India. Um, so what's what's interesting about it is that um, together they're planning something around 50, almost 57 gigawatts of coal by the year 2030, which is which is a lot, um, and it's about 26 in Indonesia, 31 in in Vietnam, and you know there's there's a few interesting findings around around this. Um, one thing we notice is that traditionally um, some of these um, projects were financed with essentially concessional finance from international development banks, so the likes of the Asian Development Bank, uh, the World Bank, or or even the uh, the China Development Bank. But what's happened is actually more recently, the governments realized that uh, the uh, the economy and also power demand in these countries are growing so fast that they actually need a lot more participation. They need more mm-hmm. private investors. They need more diverse uh, companies to come in and develop projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've, they've started to open up some of this. And actually, uh, after they've done that, actually more and more um, consortiums of, of uh, power companies and banks and others 
um, have come in, and they're also developing coal projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we looked at the numbers. If you kind of break it down between, let's say, equity and debt, um, in, in, uh, in Indonesia, for instance, outside of Indonesian companies themselves, it's almost an even split between Chinese and Japanese companies providing uh, equity into coal projects, mm-hmm. um, each about just over a quarter. Um, looking at Vietnam, which has about, uh, I think there's about $3 billion of equity invested in coal projects um, there so far. Uh, Japan actually leads at about 27%, and then followed by China. Um, and then a bit from sort of other neighboring countries like Malaysia, uh, sort of Saudi Arabia, and also uh, a bit from South Korea as well. So it's, it's, re- it's really, um, I'd say it's a small number of countries, um, but it, it, is, uh, it is neighboring countries in, in Asia. Mm. Um, and then also on the debt side, it's, it's actually um, uh, almost a tie between Japan and China. Mm. So in terms of debt financing, it's almost $30 billion provided to coal projects in Vietnam and Indonesia. Um, almost evenly split between Japan and China with uh, a bit, a little bit from uh, banks in South Korea and Singapore and also some domestic banks as well. Mm. And are most of these projects well underway to being construction? Or are most of them sort of somewhere still in the planning process? So the projects we looked at um, here are all projects that have um, secured financial close. So they're very likely to go ahead. Um, there, are, there is a pipeline of projects that are still looking for money. Um, and then, of course, there are questions about you know, whether they will find money, given that um, uh, you know, now there is some pressure against uh, sort of coal financing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another interesting aspect we looked at is that, you know, we obviously we asked the question um, of these banks. So there's a list of banks that have done this sort of financing. Um, have they actually announced any coal financing uh, phase-out policies or, or not? So in total, there's something around almost 40, uh, somewhere about 40, 45 uh, banks which have actually uh, financed projects in Indonesia and Vietnam. Um, and they, they roughly split between three categories. Uh, most of the international banks and the, even some of the, Euro, you know, the European development agencies that previously supported coal financing in Indonesia and Vietnam um, had said, okay, we'll phase out coal and we'll stop finding new, uh, funding new coal projects. Um, and then the sac- second category is some of the major Japanese and Korean banks, um, which are basically saying we'll only fund coal projects with uh, you know, capping, ca- uh, carbon capture storage uh, systems or they're sort of ultra super critical and they're really efficient. Um, but the vast majority, uh, about two-thirds, almost 30 uh, banks, mostly Chinese and some of the domestic Indonesian or Vietnamese banks, um, haven't said a word yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but looking at this study, I mean, it does give us a sense that um, perhaps we're on the last legs of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this could flip very, very quickly, obviously, right? With a few announcements, things could change. Um, so it seems like this is you know, I venture to say that this this is sort of the end of coal. Uh, you know, we, we're seeing the end of coal in Southeast Asia if these projects go through. And, you know, the question is, will these banks, uh, after they work their way through this pipeline, are they actually going to go ahead and announce even more projects? That's not, uh, you know, maybe not likely. Interesting. That's certainly something to watch. Um, we can't leave the region without talking about India. Obviously, as as big and complex a topic as uh, the conversation we were having on China, India has had some remarkable success in terms of setting some very aggressive targets for renewable energy deployment, um, very aggressive targets for you know energy access uh, that they've you know met or come close to meeting in both cases. 
but also, you know, some markets for renewable energy suffering from contracting or pricing issues and the like. What are some of the big trends that you're seeing with regard to India and their overall effort to deploy more renewable and clean sure. energy? I think, well, India is certainly becoming more and more important uh, over time. And um, if, if we look to the far future, uh, you know, India is uh, basically set to overtake the U.S. as the world's second largest emitter uh, by the year 2027 or so, so in less than 10 years. Um, and it's going to also overtake the U.S. as the uh, second largest power market uh, in the world. So it's definitely growing, and, and there, there's uh, insignificance. Um, you're right that India has had um, some fairly, um, Prime Minister Modi has announced some fairly ambitious targets, um, e even in his first term as Prime Minister. Um, and this has really helped spur uh, a lot of investment into clean energy, a lot of auctions um, that have taken place. So that's certainly helped uh, things a lot. Um, so India has sort of run more auctions for renewable energy than any other country in the world, including China, um, and also has uh, some of the cheapest solar in the world, um, some, some of the most competitive renewable energy in the world. Um, but having said that, so it, you know, that's all, I think, very good, and it's sort of a very positive story uh, for India. Um, and, and also, actually, um, for the last three years, India has built a lot more wind and solar than has built coal, mm. um, even though it's still building coal. So, again, positive in terms of the transition. Um, but on the other hand, there's always a sense when, when you talk to people in India that, you know, more could be done, right? Mm -hmm. If only certain things, X, Y, Z, were a bit better, actually the transition will be a lot quicker. India will build a lot more <laughs> renewable energy projects, you know, finance will go up, et cetera. So some of these, you know, things, if only, um, are usually around um, – one one of the main things comes that comes out is around the uh, uh, distribution companies or distribution utilities. They're called DISCOMs in India. Essentially, um, most of them are in pretty poor financial health. So if you're a renewable energy developer, you you have to basically sell your electricity to one of these DISCOM companies. Um, and if the DISCOMs are basically uh, have a lot of debt and they rely on government to bail them out all the time, um, then they they can't purchase a lot of renewable energy. Um, or they, they only go for the lowest uh, price renewable energy uh, projects. So if only uh, you know, these discounts were in better financial situation, maybe more renewable energy will be deployed and they can purchase a bit more, uh, for instance, or they can invest in better infrastructure to have uh, more of that in place. Um, the second uh, sort of what if is, again, more related to the economy. So like China, India's economy has been slowing recently as well, um, where the growth rates haven't been as fast. Um, and then also there's, uh, there's, there's a bit of a banking uh, situation as well. So again, a lot of these projects are having trouble finding financing or the, 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 uh, the cost of debt is very high. So people would say if only uh, you know, the banking system were better, the economy were stronger, more projects would be built uh, and more lending would take place. So yes, it is a, is a story of a positive um, change in India. But um, there's always a sense that more, a lot more could happen. Yeah, we sort of watched carefully the Uday reform scheme to, to deal with the indebtedness of the DISCOMs. And like everybody, have been disappointed in the progress made under that particular reform effort. But also, uh, one question, uh, we had the Minister of Renewable Energy from India here uh, earlier last year was very bullish on their sort of new plans to couple storage with renewable energy and their auction platforms. How transformative or important do you think that that will be for both India and then, too, for sort of the global storage market? 
Well, we have seen um, some of the more recent auctions in India um, are um, uh, sort of, they've sort of moved away from just solar or wind only auctions. So either they're coupling uh, solar and wind together in some of these auctions, or they're technology agnostic. You can, you know, anybody can bid into them, um, or they're in, even more, a little more innovative um, around sort of bidding on around 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 the clock power provision or peak power provision or 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 something something like that. So that that's something that we observed in uh, other markets, and it's starting in India, though still still very uh, very small. Um, I think that I mean, you know, I think it's it's definitely a good thing that. Um, the policymakers in India are thinking about this, and they're they're looking at promoting it. Um, but it's still very early days on this, uh, and uh, you know we think that actually there there's still um, a lot that can be done to sort of integrate renewable energy uh, into the grid in India. Uh, for instance, there is still no sort of uh, ancillary uh, services market, which mm-hmm. actually that you know usually holds back uh, a deployment of, of storage. Um, so early days and at least the good signals, but but still ways to go. Well, Justin, this has been yet another really great conversation. It is a very dynamic region of the world that you cover, and it's always really helpful to have your insights and thoughts. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks again to Justin for joining Energy 360. Find more episodes by following us on Twitter at CSIS Energy, on the web at CSIS.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening.